1: From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, the U.S. braces for a wave of asylum seekers. Pandemic restrictions that made it much harder for immigrants seeking to enter the U.S. are being lifted today. And once that happens, tens of thousands of people a day are expected to cross the southern border from Mexico seeking asylum. That will further strain an immigration system that's already overwhelmed.
2: The desire for people to come to the country had been almost entirely where the southwest border is concerned, people from Mexico. That began to change. We began to see people coming from Central America and coming in family groups.
1: That's Doris Meisner. She was in charge of U.S. immigration during the Clinton administration, and she studied this issues for decades. We'll hear more from her in just a bit. First, I want to bring in White House reporters Justin Sink and Akela Gardner, who are covering this story. Justin, the current controversy at the border seems to be focused on this old and one-time obscure provision in the law called Title Forty-two, which was put into effect during the pandemic as a way of restricting immigration. How does that work? Well, I think it's
3: useful to take a step back to before the pandemic and how people were coming to the U.S. There was a group of folks who had all their paperwork in order and were coming on flights or maybe border crossings but had gotten their visas, gotten all their paperwork done, were going through the system as normal. And then there's a wider group of folks who were coming over without documentation. So there were folks who were sneaking across the border in areas where there wasn't surveillance, and we don't know a ton about them because by definition they were seeking to sort of avoid detection. And then there's a third group who came across the border and asked for asylum. And so what those folks say is that they've got a credible fear of persecution back in their home countries. So for lots of folks, they're escaping gangs, uh, violence, persecution because of things like sexual orientation or gender. For any of those reasons, an immigration judge might look at their case and say, hey, the United States agrees and thinks that you are deserving of asylum status, refugee status in the United States. But what other folks know is that if you come across the border and claim asylum status, you have to go before a judge, and that sets off a longer process under which you're given a court date, but then released in the country until you have to get to that court date. So, Some folks think that they'll get refugee status at the end of it and legitimately are going through the process, but might not. Other folks really want to get through the first part of that process, which is to get a court date and then be released and then can kind of go wherever they want in the country and seek economic opportunities. And so for folks who are coming to the U.S. in search of those economic opportunities, this is a way that they can circumvent the worry about being caught right at the border as they cross.
1: So some people who are coming to the U.S. just to work have learned that the easiest way to do that is to ask for asylum and then disappear into the country and go to work. Exactly,
3: and so I think you see critics on both sides of this say it's a process that isn't working very well. There aren't enough judges to adequately look at folks who have legitimate and reasonable fear of persecution, have reasons that they need protection from their home country, and there's also not enough judges to say hey, this is a case where somebody is just trying to bypass the line and, and get another country quickly. What happened during the coronavirus pandemic is a wide array of sort of emergency powers came into effect. So what the Trump administration did was dig up this old law from nearly 100 years ago and use
4: it. ...the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has decided to exercise its authority under the Title 42 of the U.S. Code to give Customers of Border Protection the tools it needs to prevent the transmission of the virus coming through.
3: And whether it was because they were seeking to legitimately stop the spread of the coronavirus pandemic, whether it was because they were trying to stop undocumented migration across the southern border, or some combination of both, what ended up happening functionally was that lots of folks who otherwise would have been able to go through this asylum process ended up being returned back to their home countries or returned back across the Mexican border.
1: And Ikela, that caused a huge backlog of people on the border.
5: So they have now turned away some 2 million people who have come to the border seeking asylum. Those people no longer really have to go through the same process that they have been for years. It's sort of frustrating for these people who have made this long journey that they can no longer have a chance because of this law.
1: And what's happening to them? Are the countries where they came from just taking them back in?
3: Well, it really depends. Some countries won't take these folks back. The U.S. has tried to get other countries to take them back. They've got had some success with Mexico, with Canada, with Spain, with other allies and partners in the region where folks can go back. Some countries are taking them back. The administration is doing flights on a daily basis from the southern border back. And some are just kind of camped out on the U.S.-Mexican border in these massive towns that have emerged, seeking another chance to try to get back into the United States.
1: And this is especially a problem from countries where the U.S. doesn't really have diplomatic relations like Cuba.
3: Yeah, so often those countries that the U.S. has the worst relationship are the ones where the economic situation is the most dire. And and so that's why folks are making this journey away from their families and friends. The administration has been trying to address this in many different ways. Vice President Harris has looked to American companies to invest in some of these countries.
5: I've asked Microsoft to partner with us on what we can do to get people access to banking systems through technology and basically help them with their digital connectiveness. Let's see the people, let's see their needs, and let's, let's focus on it.
3: And they've also worked with other countries in Central and South America and asked them to take more refugees to work with the United States to help people who are genuinely trying to get out of terrible situations and just looking for somewhere else that they can go.
1: It's notable that even though Biden's stance on immigration is very different from Trump's, he didn't repeal Title 42 when he took office.
5: Exactly, they have continued it over the past something like two years now this program was supposed to end in the spring of 2022, because back in April, the CDC said the situation of the pandemic has just improved so much. Vaccination rates are much higher. This is no longer necessary. So they could no
1: longer justify it for its intended purpose, which was to protect Americans from the spread of disease.
5: Exactly. They could no longer justify it as a public health emergency. And so basically, this was supposed to end last year. But this group of Republican states, this coalition came together and said, if you end this program, chaos is going to ensue at the border. So this group of Republican governors filed a lawsuit to prevent Title 42 from ending. And this escalated all the way up to the Supreme Court at the request of the Biden administration. And they decided to tie the end of Title 42 to the end of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is now May eleven.
3: And that's the sort of dual purpose. When we're looking at the Trump administration, it's on the one hand, there's that real public health emergency. On the other, it's a way to sort of back into an immigration policy that Republicans prefer, which is that you don't have this pathway open where people can both claim refugee status and also exploit the loophole of the gap between when you're captured on the southern border and when you have to show up to a court date to go anywhere you want in the U.S. and potentially fall off the map and disappear.
1: So the justices ruled that Title 42 was to remain in effect until there was an official declaration, essentially, of the end of the pandemic.
3: And Republicans in Congress have been eager to get that, especially because they have wanted to see COVID-era vaccination requirements, COVID-era travel restrictions, all these sort of things that were implemented during the pandemic rolled back. And so even though the Biden administration had planned to let public health officials make that decision when lawmakers on Capitol Hill pushed for legislation that would have it roll back in May. Ultimately, the White House said, that's okay, we'll go forward with that date.
0: We're here today because
1: of the impending end of Title 42 policy. President Biden is laying down a welcome mat to people across the entire world saying that the United States border is wide open President Biden's open border policies is going to cause a catastrophic disaster in the United States. That's Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas. And Justin, Republican governors like him who were arguing that once Title 42 is lifted, there's going to be a crush of people once again pouring over the southern border. They're not wrong. The Biden administration is pretty worried about this.
3: Yeah, they're estimating that there could be as many as 10,000 people coming across a day, which is a huge logistical challenge for everybody at the border. So in preparation for Title 42 being lifted, the administration has done a series of things that they hope will sort of stem that flow and also hope will support folks who are working the border, the Border Patrol agents right now, but there's a real concern that these steps might not do enough. And we could see, as we did early in the Trump administration, late in the Obama administration, and often happens in summers, a real big push, especially of all these folks who have been pent up waiting for Title 42 to end.
5: So one thing that they just recently announced is that they are going to be sending 1,500 troops to the border to basically assist In these first few months now that Title 42 is ending, and they specifically said they will not be doing law enforcement activities, they will not be even interacting with migrants, but they're going to be helping with logistical things like data entry and warehouse support. So they are in some ways trying to prepare for this.
3: Yeah, and so in addition to those troops, the administration unveiled a whole new set of rules and policies that will mean that these interactions go differently than they did before the pandemic. Back in January, the president announced that he was going to expand parole so that more people could come through the refugee system. So 30,000 people a month from four countries, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, will be eligible for that sort of asylum status. But there are new, tougher restrictions for how you can qualify for it. So you have to have checked with every country that you transited through on your way to the U.S. to see if you could be offered refugee status there and have the paperwork to show that you were denied in those countries.
1: Instead of just showing up and getting a court date.
3: Exactly. And on top of that, you have to use a new app for a smartphone that the government has developed and make an appointment with an asylum officer on the other side of the border. So if you show up and you don't have one of these coveted appointments, you're sent straight back. The idea is that there are more slots available. There are more sort of legal pathways that exist but that for folks who don't kind of check all the boxes, and those are hard boxes to check, it's tough to get through. If you don't have all your paperwork in order... You don't have a phone. Yeah, and not only are you sent back, you're not eligible to come back to the United States under any sort of legal status for the next five years.
1: Is there a concern that this is just going to increase pressure of people trying to sneak over the border, get through the fence, go across the Rio Grande River all the ways that people have over many years tried to sneak into the U.S. instead of at least trying to go through the process the right way?
3: Yeah, that's a huge concern of immigration activists who say the system that we had before was ad hoc and broken in many ways, but it did route people towards fairly safe border crossings. And you remove the incentive for all but the lucky few who get one of these appointments to go through normal designated pathways to get onto U.S. soil, you really open the door to exploitative and dangerous routes into the U.S.
1: When we come back, what other countries are doing to control the wave of immigrants on their way to the U.S.?
4: Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. what are Mexico and other countries in Central America doing to prepare for this wave of immigrants, people who are going to pass through their countries on their way to the U.S. or who are going to be on the receiving end of people the U.S. turns away.
5: I think the U.S.'s biggest partner in this right now is Mexico. And they have basically agreed to accept 30,000 migrants a month who are turned away from the U.S. And they've also said they are partnering with the administration in terms of preventing drug trafficking.
3: We are seeing Colombia, Guatemala, invite the U.S. in to create processing centers in their native countries so that folks don't make the dangerous journey without having had the chance to do one of these interviews. And it doesn't create this sort of cycle of displacement, cycle of chaos. Ideally, folks would be able to, if they're genuinely seeking refugee status, either come from or come to Colombia, Guatemala, go through these interviews, then buy a plane ticket and fly to the U.S. directly because they've got all their paperwork in order. And so you see these other countries, you see countries like Canada and Spain saying, if the U.S. is able to process these folks, we might be able to take more refugees. You see these partnerships developing where they're trying to find ways to quell the chaos, but the real question is, are these systems big enough And are the resources there so that people are actually disincentivized from just crossing the border illegally? And I think the real worry among activists, among folks in the administration, and certainly among critics, is that this system just isn't built well enough right now to stop what could be a really massive surge.
1: If people do have to show that every country they went through, they sought asylum and were denied, will the U.S. be able to make better judgments about... Who the people are who are coming, or is it they'll just be rubber stamped through all these other countries who kind of want to pass them along?
3: There's certainly a lot of rubber stamping happening. In Mexico, in particular, Mexico will essentially give you a document as soon as you apply for asylum saying that it's rejected. This is in certain Mexican states. And then as you work through the system, you might be able to come back and actually, in fact, get accepted. The U.S. has created this incentive structure for other countries to reject refugee applications so that people can move along pathways. And so, you know, this is an issue that actually hits not just the U.S., but every country along the line and has created political and economic issues. So it's why you hear a lot of talk about trying to come up with unified solutions across the hemisphere, because I think everybody sees migration as as a real challenge.
1: Justin, we're also starting to see a little bit of motion in the Senate over this.
3: Yeah, so there's a bipartisan bill from Senator Sinema and Senator Tillis that would essentially extend Title 42 type restrictions for the next couple of years with the hope that they could use that space to sort of get uh, the big white whale of Congress, which is a comprehensive immigration reform bill. This short-term bill isn't very likely. It needs 60 votes in the Senate. Doesn't seem to have it. And it lacks something that would give Democrats a thing they could point to for immigration activists, something like a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers, where they could say, hey, guys, we're not just keeping people out, including legitimate refugees. We're trying to do something that could actually help people who are really in need. It's an interesting idea, but it doesn't seem to have the political momentum right now.
5: There's also a proposal in the House from Republicans that proposes resuming wall construction, which we know was this deeply unpopular policy under Trump that has basically stopped under the Biden administration. And they also want to up the Border Patrol agents to 22,000. It's right now at 19,000. And that 22,000 number is sort of seen as this optimal size for the agency. There are things that Democrats and Republicans agree on with immigration. But there's sort of these two different extremes that they have. They know that this is a problem that needs to be dealt with, but they just see it in two drastically different ways on how to deal with it.
1: And Kayla, that points to, of course, the politics involved in immigration. And we're heading into another presidential campaign. And the last one, immigration was front and center. Donald Trump made it a centerpiece of his campaign. Do you think that the crisis at the border will once again be a central issue in the campaign?
5: I think it definitely will, but I think we're definitely going to see it from Republicans. I don't think that President Biden sees this as a winning issue for him, so I don't think it's something that he's going to seek to highlight. Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been one of these Republicans who've been sending migrants to other cities, it's definitely going to be something that he is going to be hitting Biden on if and when he announces, and of course Trump as well. He was sort of seen as someone who was tough on immigration when he was in office.
1: Justin, as you continue to report on this, what are you looking for? I think the biggest thing
3: that we're looking at is the real humanitarian toll that this has the potential to have. Because if you have perhaps over a million people bottled up waiting to get across the border and in fact do surge across the border, just in terms of food, water, housing, healthcare, basic logistics, keeping families together so that they're not separated, making sure that people are getting to safe places, whether it's in the US or back in their home countries or in third party countries. It is a massive logistical undertaking and these aren't boxes that you're trying to get from one place to another. These are human beings that have health issues, personal issues, all sorts of problems because if they didn't have all sorts of problems, they wouldn't have taken this sort of harrowing journey to the United States in the first place. There's just this real danger of a humanitarian crisis developing, and I think that's going to be something that we're watching very carefully.
1: Justin, Akela, thanks for coming on the show.
3: Thanks so much for having us.
1: When we come back, an immigration expert on what a system that actually works might look like.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and
0: Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
4: What could you do
0: if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.
1: Now let's hear from someone who's seen the challenges of immigration policy from inside the government and has worked on the issue for years. Doris Meisner was commissioner of the Immigration and Naturalization Service when Bill Clinton was president. That's what the department was called then. She's now senior fellow and director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Migration Policy Institute. That's a nonpartisan think tank here in Washington. Ms. Meisner, how did we get here? Can you give us a broader perspective about what's always been the same at the border and what's different right now?
2: Well, the same over the years with this problem is that the United States has always been a nation of immigrants and is a place where people want to live and create a future for themselves and for their families. We've always had illegal immigration, just as we've had legal immigration. And we have a very generous legal immigration system, but it is focused almost entirely on family members coming for people who are already in the country. But we do not have a large share of our immigration that is employment-based, that is based on people coming to work in the United States who do not already have family ties. The other part of our immigration system is what's known as the humanitarian dimension, and that is offering protection through refugee programs and now through political asylum, which is what's so much at issue at the southwest border. The desire for people to come to the country had until... 10 years ago or so, been almost entirely where the southwest border is concerned, people from Mexico. They were typically young males coming on their own, attempting to avoid the Border Patrol and work in the United States. That began to change in the 2000s and especially in the 2000-teens. We began to see more and more, not only Mexicans, but people coming from Central America and coming in family groups and young people unaccompanied. And that was because of changing conditions in Central American countries. And that pattern has continued. It's also people from further south in the hemisphere, and often from other parts of the world. And those people are coming for a mixture of reasons, both economic and uh, arguably political and repression. And they are not trying to avoid the Border Patrol. They are trying to turn themselves over to the Border Patrol in order to apply for protection and safety in the United States. But it has led to our asylum process being deeply, deeply overburdened and unable to decide those cases in a timely fashion.
1: And so is this the case of the government simply not keeping up with changing conditions, or is it that the politics of America changed along with it?
2: It's probably both. The systems that we have at the southwest border have been inadequate for these numbers. What we've done in funding terms as a post 9-11 phenomenon really is funded heavily our border patrol, our enforcement and technology along the southwest border, but we have not funded proportionately what we think of as the downstream agencies that must support that border enforcement mission for it to work. And to be specific about that, we do not have asylum officers at the numbers that we need in order to screen people that are applying for asylum and decide the cases. We do not have facilities to be able to make it possible to hold people during the period that they're interviewed for removal if they're not eligible for asylum. We do not have the judges in our court system, which is part of the Justice Department, nor do we have the resources at the Department of Health and Human Services to place people with sponsors in the United States if they have an ability and are legally eligible to stay here. So this is a cross-government system and it's unevenly resourced. So the pieces of the system that need to work together don't work together effectively.
1: Why hasn't the immigration funding changed to meet the changing needs?
2: Well, let's be clear. It's the Congress's job to fund the federal government. And this administration has been asking for sufficient funding for more than a year. And there have been at least three or four opportunities for Congress to rise to meet those needs. And they have refused to do so. For decades, the broad consensus is that there were policy disagreements, should you have guest worker programs, what kinds of uh, humanitarian assistance should be given through immigration. But there was a general bipartisan agreement that immigration is a net plus for the country. It's a net plus for our economy. It's a net plus for our competitive edge around the world. It reflects our values as a nation. That changed with the Trump administration. The Trump administration described immigration and views immigration as a threat border to the security. country.
4: We need a wall. We need border security. We got to get rid of catch and release. You catch a criminal, you take
2: his name, you release him, and he never shows up again. He goes into our society. And then That we end up basic broadly different philosophical outlook on immigration and what it represents has persisted and deepened. So the politics that underlie all of this are certainly an important factor.
1: One thing the United States has done in recent years is to put more pressure on Mexico, on Guatemala and other nations where immigrants are coming from in order to absorb the number of people who are coming before they across the border, do you see that continuing? Is that a viable part of a solution?
2: Yes, I see it continuing and it is a viable part of a solution because this has become a hemispheric issue. Until very recently, the Western Hemisphere has not been a refugee-producing region, as has been South Asia or the Middle East. But in recent years, it has become a refugee-producing region, so there is an assumption of shared responsibility around the world. Mexico is the most important to the United States, of course, because they're on our border, and Mexico's situation geographically has changed dramatically in the last 10 years or so. It used to be primarily a migrant-sending country. Then it became increasingly both a migrant-sending and a migrant-transit country. Now it's a migrant-sending, a migrant-transit, and a migrant-destination country.
1: What do you see happening? How do you think that this problem can be eased?
2: Well, in an ideal world, we would have the executive branch and the legislative branch working together to change our laws and the funding of those laws, but fundamentally the laws themselves, to align with realities on the ground. And those realities on the ground do have to do with the fact that many of the people who are trying to come are not suitable asylum candidates, but asylum is the only possible avenue to get to the United States if you don't already have family here. And many of the people who do have family here have family here who are in an illegal status. And that too goes back to the Congress because we have a country of a foreign born population in the 40 millions and about a fourth of it, about 11 million, do not have legal status. Now, yes, they broke the law to come, but they've been here, more than 60% of them have been here more than 10 years. We need a legalization program along with more opportunities for people to come to the country for employment reasons. Now, that doesn't mean that we can take everybody that wants to come, but we could have a rational system that recognizes what today's needs are and that is more flexible and that makes it possible for people to come for work purposes. We don't have that. And so what the administration is working with and what the administration is now laying out as its vision for the post 511 period, is a whole series of measures which, if they are able to be implemented effectively, do represent the pieces of a longer-term, durable response. That doesn't mean that there won't be illegal immigration, but it does mean that they may have the chance of succeeding in a much more orderly system, that incentivizes and provides ways for people to apply for asylum, but at the same time achieves a degree of control along the border so that there are not the chaotic conditions and unexpected, unpredictable surges and flows that we're seeing today. The next 60 to 90 days is critical in being able to determine whether the immediate response is changing people's behavior, but it will take longer than that. I mean, we should talk about this a year from now in order to really see whether the broad measures and shifts that the administration is attempting to incentivize, in fact, take hold.
1: Doris Meisner, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Falero. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another big take.